Luke 11. So last week we said if we want to follow Jesus, we have to develop a theology of power and a theology of pain. Our theology of power says the kingdom of God is present. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the rule and reign of God is now active among us. And so we can step with confidence and authority into situations that are broken and ask God to get involved. Personal situations, corporate situations, we can say God does things. God changes things. Things don't have to stay as they are. And so God, as one of your children, I'm asking you to get involved in this situation. Theology of pain says the kingdom of God is not fully here. Things aren't going to be fully made new until Jesus returns. And so with humility and compassion, we walk with people who would say God is absent in this circumstance. I don't see him working in this relationship or I don't see him working in my body or I don't see him working in my family or whatever those things are. And we also understand that there'll be circumstances that we engage in in our community that will remain broken. Even as the kingdom comes, it won't come Fully, And so we're not triumphalistic with compassion and with humility. We, we recognize that the kingdom is still future. So we want to hold on to both of those realities if we're going to follow Jesus because he held on to both of those realities. One thing, if you remember from last week, Jesus um, exercised a demon from this guy. And it was very obvious and it was very public. And he did that and it stirred reaction from the crowd. Some people were amazed, some people accused him, some people tested him. But the action, this miracle, provoked a response in the people. And today we're going to look at something Jesus doesn't do. It's a non-action, but it also provokes a response. It allows him to see what's going on in the hearts of the people that he's with. And we'll kind of see how that works out for everyone involved. So verse 37, chapter 11. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. So let me pause here and give you the setup. So this is not hygienic hand washing. This is ceremonial hand washing. So Jesus is invited to the house of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have a, their rules on how you wash your hands before you eat. The idea is you easily could have touched something unclean. You might not know that you did. But being out there in the marketplace, being out there in the world, you easily could have come into contact with something unclean. So just in case you did, let's go ahead and wash our hands in this prescribed fashion just to make sure that you're okay before you start eating. Because if you eat with unclean hands and you become unclean. So it was a it was a preventative. Again, it was a ceremonial washing. It had nothing to do with getting the dirt, um, the literal dirt off of his hands. And I think Jesus deliberately didn't wash. He knew the deal. He knew the. He knew what they expected, and he did not wash his hands. I think he was trying to see how they would respond. He was looking. I don't know. Well, I, don't, I think he was. I think he was trying to get a reaction out of them. He wanted to see what was in their hearts. So this idea of not washing hands, you won't find that in the Old Testament. If you read through the whole Old Testament, there's no law about washing hands. There's a written law. We've talked about this before. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so this is an example. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you work, you don't work on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, don't do anything. So that's the written law. And if you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the the rabbis said there's about 600, not about, there's 613 laws. Most of them contained in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you're supposed to follow all those. But many of them are general. They're not very specific. And so it's difficult to know, well, what does it actually mean 
to remember the Sabbath. And so they created all of this other stuff. We've talked about this before, but just to remind you, called the oral law. So this is their commentary on the written law. So what the written law says is, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't do any work. And they said, well, here are all the things that are work. Here's 39 things that equal work, so don't do any of those. And there's actually subpoints under all of these, but they don't fit on the screen. So you have 613 laws that are written, and then you have hundreds and hundreds of additional laws that are spoken that all explain, here's how you keep the written law. I think maybe their heart originally was good. They were trying to help people be obedient. But in time, it became very burdensome. So the idea of washing hands was in the oral law. It wasn't written, so Jesus not doing it, he didn't sin. He didn't break any commandment that was written in the Bible. He just didn't follow their tradition. And what it, and it caused a rise in the Pharisees. It says they were amazed. They were surprised. They wondered, why didn't he do this? For us, kind of moving forward, we're going to look at their response, recognize Jesus wants to know what's in our heart as well. Romans eight twenty nine, God has predestined us to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So his highest desire for you is to make you as much like Jesus as possible before you die. And what he will tend to do is either send or allow difficult people in difficult circumstances into your life for the purpose of, let's see what's going on in there. Everybody's great on vacation. You're patient, you're kind, you're selfless, all of those things. Tuesday morning when you're stuck in traffic, you're running late, you missed a deadline, your kids got up. Like those kinds of things, that's when we actually know what's really in your heart. Vacation's not a true reflection of anybody. And so what God will do is sin slash allow difficult people, difficult circumstances in order to surface, in order to bring out the stuff that's actually going on in your heart so he can deal with it. It's not to make anybody feel bad. It's so he can deal with those things so we can see it and he can see it. So then he can do the work and we can cooperate with him. In the work of making us more like Jesus. Our tendency with difficult relationships and difficult circumstances is to bail. And to bail quickly. Before you do that, let me just encourage you to ask God, how do you want to use this person? How do you want to use this circumstance to make me more like you? Ask that first. Then you can say, get me out of here as quick as possible. But first, give him a chance. God, how do you want to use this person? How do you want to use this circumstance to make me more like you? Because the thing is... If you miss it, then he's just going to bring it back around because he's intent on transforming your character. And so if every time I'm around somebody, let's say, God, I'm not a patient person. And that's something I feel like the Lord's trying to work in me is patience or graciousness or kindness or whatever those things are. If every time I'm in a situation that reveals my lack of patience or kindness or graciousness, I bail I run away, then all God's going to do is continue to bring those things my way until I get it. He's much less concerned with my comfort than he is my character. And so what's better for me is to say, all right, I'm here. So how do you want to use this? Let's get this over quickly so then I can get out of here. So that's what's going on here in terms of the setup. And we'll see Jesus's response. So the Pharisees are surprised or amazed at what at his lack of um Ceremonial hand washing. And here's how Jesus responds to them. Now, then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people did not the one who made the outside make the inside also. Yes. But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor 
and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. So Pharisees, a big category. These are the most holy people, righteous people of their day, the most popular religious leaders of their day. So these guys religiously are at the top of the food chain. Jesus has an issue with them. And his issue is y'all are focusing on behaviors. You're focusing on externals. You're not spending any time on heart, on internals. You're all about the outside of the cup, not about the inside. Now, he doesn't write them off completely. He says there's still hope. Clean the inside of the cup. Be generous. That would be an expression of a changed heart. We saw a couple of weeks ago, two greatest commands, love God and love people. If you love people, then you'll be generous towards them. So that would be a reflection of a changed heart towards people. Y'all are religious leaders. So ideally... Your posture towards people is one of help. You're helping people connect with God. You're helping people grow in their relationship with God. So if you're generous towards them, that shows you have a proper uh, pers- proper uh, posture towards these people. But, he says, y'all are in danger. That's what woe means. Woe means you're in danger from God. You're not done, but you're moving in the wrong direction. So Pharisees, y'all are in danger... Because you're focused on the, on the details. You're focusing on crossing every T and dotting every I. And you're missing these huge pieces. It's great that you're tithing all of your herbs and spices. Absolutely. Let's not forget the greatest commandments are to love God and to love people. Let's not neglect loving God and doing justice to other people. Don't uh, do both. Let's do the big things and the small things. You're taking pride in the fact that you can check mark. All of the little rules that you're following, even though you're missing the big picture. You're in danger from God, he says in the second one, because you're using your position not to help other people, but to promote yourself. You're using it to get the best seats. You're using it to get the most prominent place. You're using it to get other people to look at you. Far from using your position as a religious leader to help other people, you're using it to help yourself. And then he says, and woe to you, you're in danger from God because you're like an unmarked grave. So a grave was um, unclean ground. And so in Jerusalem, three times a year, you had all of these pilgrims come in and they wouldn't know where the graves are. And so what you would do at being a good neighbor is you paint the ones white, whichever ones you're responsible for, you'd whitewash them. You paint them white. So when the pilgrims came, the travelers came, they could see where the graves are and they could avoid them. Because if they stepped on a grave, then they were unclean and they couldn't participate in the festival. So the kind, loving thing to do is I'm going to mark these graves so nobody steps on them accidentally so they can still participate in the festival that they're coming to celebrate. I'd hate for anybody to have to sit that out because they accidentally stepped on a grave. And what Jesus says is y'all are the opposite of that. Y'all are unmarked graves. People think this is safe. People think doing what you're telling them to do, people think following your example is actually going to help them. It's not at all. Just like an unmarked grave makes people unclean, following your example, obeying your teachings, it hurts people. You're doing the opposite. Far from helping, you're actually hindering people from encountering God. Verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him and said, Teacher, when you say these things... 
you insult also. So this is a subset. So we have Pharisees is the big umbrella. Teachers of the law, excuse me, your Bible may say scribes. That was a subset. Um, we may, we would consider these guys like lawyers. So they were the ones who took the law that was written and then they broke it down and they parsed it and they created all of the stuff around it. And so they're saying you're hurting our feelings when you say that because we're the ones who are doing that work. And Jesus, far from apologizing, says, and you experts in the law, woe to you also, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Excuse me. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that's been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel, so he's the first person killed in Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, he would be the last person killed in Second Chronicles. So he's the last person in the Old Testament who's killed, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself have not entered and you have hindered, the, hindered those who are entering. So what he says about y'all, scribes. So y'all are teachers. Teachers clarify. Teachers make things simpler. Teachers should help people understand. Y'all aren't doing that. And so you're in danger from God also. What you're doing, far from making things more clear or more simple, you keep piling on all of these commands and telling other people to keep them. And you're not doing anything to help them. So imagine that you are a Jewish person in this Culture, And so most likely you make a living through farming, which requires a lot of time, a lot of effort on your part. If you're a woman, you may help in the field. You probably spend most of your time taking care of your family. Maybe you can make a few things that you can sell. But in general, it's an agrarian economy, which requires a lot of work on your part. So what you're hearing from your religious leaders is here's 613 laws that you have to keep. And oh, by the way. There's, a, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of laws around those laws. And you've got to keep all of them. Who can keep up with that? It was thought that normal people were doomed when it came to keeping the law. None of them could. So they're like, Pharisees, you do it for us. We can't. I'm too busy working to try to keep up with 613 laws and literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of additional requirements that y'all are adding on me. And so what Jesus says is, y'all are in danger, scribes. Y'all are in danger, teachers. You're supposed to be helping people, and you're not. You just keep piling on and piling on and piling on. You're crushing people under the weight of all of these requirements that aren't, they're, they're not in the they're not God's heart. It's not what he's looking for. You should be clarifying the message, and what you're doing is you kill the messengers, just like your parents did, and just like your grandparents did, and just like your great-grandparents did. They killed all the messengers. You're doing the same thing. You're you build tombs for the people who they killed. And you're doing the same thing. And because y'all are about to kill the messenger with a capital M, God in the flesh, you're about to kill him. And so all of the blood... That's been shed by your ancestors from Genesis to Second Chronicles, from Abel to Zechariah. We would say from A to Z. You're going to be responsible for all of that because you're about to commit an even graver sin than they did. Because you're killing the greatest messenger 
me. God in the flesh. And he says, y'all, far from helping people, giving people the keys to knowledge, isn't that what teachers do? They help people understand. You don't have the key to knowledge. And these people who are hungry for it, you're keeping it from them. And so y'all are in danger from God because of that. What you're telling people is the key to a relationship with God is to follow all the rules. That's what you're telling them. You're piling them up with commands. Don't you understand that has never been the case? Go back and read Exodus. Scribe, that's your favorite book. That's where the law was given. Go back and read it. What happens before Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments? God first delivers his people from Egyptian bondage and leads them across the Red Sea. Before he gives them the rules for being in relationship with him, the first thing he does is he delivers them. That's how God works. It's never been keep the rules and then you can be on my team or then you can be in my family. It's always I'm going to adopt you into my family and then I'm going to tell you what the house rules are. I'm going to tell you what it looks like to maintain uh, family identity and to grow in that. Obedience always flows out of relationship. It's never the basis for relationship. You should know better, teachers of the law. But rather than telling people that, You're focusing on all of these commands and nobody can keep them. You're not keeping them and nobody else can. And you should know better. And so you're in danger from God because of what you're doing to people. And this is how it closes. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. And so then we see their heart exposed. They had an opportunity. Jesus, like, it wasn't done. Jesus said in verse 41, let's just clean the inside of the cup. Y'all are awesome at the outside. Let's just clean the inside and then everything's good. And rather than responding to him positively, rather than responding to him with humility, you know, you're right. We do focus too much on the externals. If I'm honest, I would say there's way too many rules for anybody to keep up with. I can't even keep up with all of them. And it's my job. Rather than acknowledging that and repenting, They look for a way to trap him. That's what that word means. And ultimately, it leads to his crucifixion. So again, God wants to get at our heart. And my hope for you and for me is that when my heart's exposed, I don't respond like this. I hope my response is not prideful and arrogant. Hopefully, I'm not defensive and trying to justify my own behavior. What I hope is I'm willing to say, you know, you're right. I blew it. I blew it on that. Show me the right way. So what does that look like for us? You may say... N.A., not applicable for me. I don't have a position of spiritual authority or influence. So if anybody in the room needs to hear this, it's me. I'm the one because I'm the one standing up here saying, here's what the Bible says and here's what God says and here's how you respond. And so you may say, I don't I don't play that role anywhere. That's not a, a function for me. And so this stuff. Doesn't apply. And I would say many of you don't have a formal role as a spiritual influencer or a spiritual authority, but you all do have influence and authority in the lives of others. It may not be structured, but it absolutely is significant. We talked last week about thermometer versus thermostat. Thermometers reflect atmosphere, thermostats determine it. If we're going to follow Jesus, He's inviting us to be thermostats. He's inviting us to impact the spiritual climate that we find ourselves swimming in, both with people and just kind of the general atmosphere. And so if 
That's your that's the invitation slash responsibility that we have as followers of his and be a thermostat. I may not have a formal role for sure. I may not have a title. I may not have a platform. But informally, I have relationships and I find myself in all kinds of environments. And so if you want to be effective as a thermostat, if you want to be effective as an influencer in those environments and in those relationships, let me give you a couple of things that we can see through these woes. It's, it's a bit negative, but I think we can make it positive. First, just really practically, this is nitty gritty. If you want to be an effective influencer of others, if you want to be an effective thermostat, you remove obstacles and you provide handholds. That's two sides of the same coin. I'm going to get rid of things that, that are hindrances, the things that get in the way, and I want to provide things that help. So if I, as a spiritual influencer or a spiritual thermostat, I want to help people connect with Jesus. Whatever level they're willing to and ready to, I want to help bring people in Jesus together. So I want to remove any obstacles that people would have that would keep them from encountering him and to give them whatever handholds they need to make that easier. Let's make it as easy as possible. And so I, you know the people who you love. I don't. And so I don't know what the obstacles are. They're very personal. You know the situations you're in. I don't. I don't know what it's like to work in your office. I don't know what it's like to live in your home. I don't know what it's like to serve on the board of the organization that you're thinking of. And you do. And so the obstacles are going to be personal to those people and personal specific to those environments. But a couple of things that I thought of, a lot of people have misunderstandings about who God is. And so one of the ways we can remove obstacles is we can clarify misunderstandings. We don't argue. We don't have to prove. We can just help clarify. Some people, when they think of God, they think of this vindictive accountant who's keeping track of everything on a ledger. And he can't wait to start smiting people with lightning bolts. And that's the picture. Some people see God as a senile grandfather. And he kind of winks at sin. And at some point... He's just going to let everybody in. Neither of those are biblical pictures of who God is. And there are other ways of misunderstanding him. If you know somebody, you love somebody, you're in an environment where that's the idea, you can clarify that. That's removing an obstacle people would have to actually connecting with Jesus. They may decide, well, if that's who God is, then I don't want any any part of him. And what you would say, well, if that's who God is, I don't want any part of him either. But let me tell you who I know him to be. Far from being a heavenly smiter, the Bible says he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. And that's what I know in my life. He absolutely convicts me of sin, but he always draws me back into relationship. He's never cut me off. He's never sent me packing. If there's any distance in relationship, it's because I've run away, not because he's pulled back. You're removing obstacles. You're clarifying misunderstandings. Some people have misunderstandings about what it means to follow him. Well, I got to get my act together, right? Nope. I got to be in church every week, right? Nope. I got to learn how to pray really good. Nope. What he's looking for is your yes. That's it. I want to be in relationship with you and I'm trusting you with my life. That's what he's looking for. You can clarify misunderstandings. What about empathizing with bad experiences? Some people have bad experiences with God. Most people, it's bad experiences with other Christians. And so we can empathize with them. And we can say, that's terrible. I'm sorry he said that. I'm sorry she did that. You're not trying to defend God or others. You can't go back in the past and make any of that right. 
You don't have to put a happy face on it. But you, you can be empathetic. I get it. That's tough. I can see why it would be difficult for you to choose to re-engage with other Christians or why it might be difficult for you to choose to engage with God based on that. And I don't know why. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why he did. you prayed for him to bring healing and he didn't. I don't know why. But I get how that can be difficult for you. You're removing obstacles when you choose to be empathetic with other people around other people's bad experiences. And then you provide handholds. You're a witness to God's work in your life. You have to use your words, not just your actions. This is who I know him to be. This is what he's done in my life. More important, I think, is that bottom one. Invite people into your relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we have that, this idea that my relationship with Jesus is private. It's personal, but it's never meant to be private. It's personal in that it's yours, but it's not private in that it's cut off from other people. So I want to invite people in to my relationship with the Lord, particularly when things are difficult. Absolutely when things are good. But if Carrie invites somebody into her life when she's disappointed, they can say, well, I saw how Carrie dealt with disappointment. And so when I deal with disappointment, I've got a handhold because I've seen her do it. I've seen how she's done that. And so then that gives me a bit of a template. It gives me a bit of a roadmap to know how I'm supposed to deal with it. She didn't cut and run. So maybe that means I don't have to. She also didn't pretend it was okay. She didn't just smile and say everything was fine if it wasn't fine. She was real and honest with the, before the Lord with her disappointment or her frustration, whatever those things are. That's providing a handhold. You can do that. Bring people in, personal, not private. We want to do this together. I want to allow you to see me follow him. And that hopefully gives you handholds for when you're ready to do that. That's the kind of thing that we're looking for. That can be simple things. Coming to a new church. Reading the Bible. Some people will have a clue where to start. And it's not because they're dumb. It's because they've never done it before. Give them a handhold. Hey, let's... Let me let's start in Mark and let's do it together and let's not try to read the whole thing at once. And let's talk about it. Tell me where you're confused. I'll do my best. And the places where I, that I don't know, we'll figure it out. That's giving somebody a handhold. I don't understand why people close their eyes and raise their hands. Let me give you a handhold for that. Those are the types of things that you can do. That are, again, removing obstacles, providing handholds. That's being a good teacher. It's the opposite of what the scribes were doing. They were terrible teachers. You can be a good one. You can be a good influencer. Again, it's this idea of being an effective thermostat. Now, this other thing we're going to close with is a little, um, maybe a little uh, harder to get your mind around. That was very practical and kind of nitty-gritty. This is a little more abstract, but I think fundamentally it's more important. So this is Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read you a section. You don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screen. So Ezekiel's a prophet and he has a vision. And chapter 37 is the record of one of these visions. The hand of the Lord was on me. That's Ezekiel. And God brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? So picture in your mind, 
after a battle, you've got bones everywhere and they're white. Like there's no, they're picked over. It's just bone and it's really dry. And what God is asking is, what can be done about this? He's looking to see, Ezekiel, do you believe I can do anything about this situation? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then God said to me, prophesy or speak in faith. So it's more than just saying, it's speaking in faith to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. So I prophesied or I spoke in faith as I was commanded. And as I was speaking in faith, as I was believing God to do something, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So you got the picture, right? All of these bones start making skeletons in this vision. And then the skeletons get skin, but there's no breath in them. I don't know if they look like zombies or what. But that's kind of the idea. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath or speak in faith to the breath. That word breath can also be translated spirit. It's the same word. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then God said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And I've done it, declares the Lord. Now, I'm going to mix metaphors. and I'm going to jump back and forth. So y'all just stay with me. So we have this picture, dry bones, then corpses, basically, and then a vast army full of life. Those are these three different pictures. Also in Scripture, if you'll show that other picture, there's that other slide, Josh, there's different pictures that talk about the work of the Spirit in our life. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're like a dry riverbed that's left. Ephesians 1 says that when we become Christians, we're given the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. That's the middle picture. So that's God living within me, but kind of contained in some ways. Jesus says in John 7, anyone who believes in him, rivers of living water, that is the Holy Spirit, will flow from him. That's the picture on the right. So I'm going to mix, I'm going to go back and forth between those metaphors, but I just want you to keep in mind both of those. Dry bones, then this corpse, basically, bones that are put back together with skin on, and then a fully alive, a vast army, dry riverbed, this pond picture, and then a rushing river on the right. If you want to be a thermostat, if you want to be an effective influencer of others, We've got to be willing to go after hearts. That's what the Pharisees didn't. The Pharisees went after behavior, which is easy. Going after hearts is not easy. One of the reasons it's difficult to go after hearts is because we can't see anybody's. Half the time, we don't understand our own heart. 
much less somebody else's. We look at behavior and ideally there's a connection between behavior and heart. Ideally, what's in people's hearts comes out in their behavior. But we know that's often not the case. There's hypocrisy where people people are wearing a mask. They're intentionally hiding or they're intentionally lying. Sometimes we don't even we don't even know. We have no idea why the things in our heart get all messed up when they come out in our words or our actions. Paul says in Romans seven, he's like, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, I don't want to do, those are the things I do. It's getting all messed up in the execution. And that's us, much less trying to read somebody else's motivation trying to glean somebody else's heart from their action. It's easy for us to go after behaviors. And sometimes you have to. If you're the parent of a toddler, you go after behavior. I had a friend, and he had two kids who were under five. And they were fighting. And he was talking to the older one about having a happy heart. And I was like, dude, you got to stop the bleed. Like, literally, you got to stop the bleeding. We can do happy hearts later. you got to separate this. And spank that or time out, whatever you whatever your thing is for punishment. That going for their heart when they're four. I would say doesn't work very well. And so sometimes we have to go law enforcement. It's all about behavior. The police aren't interested in your heart. They're not. That's not what they do. That's why they fine you and throw you in jail. They're trying to modify your behavior through punishment. But long term, if we want people to live lovingly and righteously, their hearts have to change because ultimately our hearts do find us out. Ultimately, we do live out of our hearts and we can only run counter to that for so long. You see that here in this chapter. The heart of the Pharisee was exposed when Jesus didn't wash his hands. However long he'd held it together, however long everybody assumed this guy, he's righteous and he's holy and he get like whatever however long he had maintained that image when he was confronted with Jesus failure to follow what he felt like was an important rule his heart was exposed and then the fact that he didn't repent in humility but decided I'm going to kill this guy well that just confirms the wickedness in his own heart and so again for us if we want to be effective influencers if we want to be these effective spiritual thermostats we can't be content going after behavior. Some of you are in roles where you have to police behavior. I I get it. What I'm saying though is long term if we don't get hearts then nothing changes. We can't expect anyone to live lovingly and righteously long term until their hearts have been changed. That takes us back to these two Pictures that I'm going to be mixing around. You think about these three. Think about your own life. If you want to be effective in pursuing other people's hearts, then you've got to realize first, God wants yours. God is not in the business of making good people better. It's not what he does. God is in the business of bringing dead people to life. It's completely different. God is not interested in behavior modification God is interested in new creation, and that is not the same thing at all. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't, dead people can't do anything. To give a dead person a list of do's and don'ts is silly. And to expect them to follow it is even sillier still. It's not going to happen. When we, when the, when, We say yes to Jesus and he forgives us of our sins. He brings us from death to life. You're that middle picture. The Holy Spirit is given to you. 
all of the resources of heaven are deposited into your heart. You carry around, you finite, broken person, carry around the infinite, perfect God in you. But for many of us, he stays right there in that little pond. And we put rocks all around it. Because we think, well, if we're to, if we're to let him go, I don't know what he's going to, where's he going to, where, where, where's he going to take me? What's he going to ask me to do? It's, it's going to be out of control. Absolutely. Do you honestly want to worship a God that you can control? That's a pet. It's not God. What you want, even though it scares you, what you want is to serve a God. That you can't control, but that you trust completely. And that's what you get. People like me, we push, we, we, we can pull people away from that river because it's, I can't control you then either. And there's a part of me that wants to. And so it's people like me, and some of you have been raised in environments where when you start to really run, you're, you're being excessive. You're a zealot. You're out of control. It's not wise. All of those things may very well be true. A hundred percent. But so what? If Jesus says, anyone who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from him. Well, that's, that's the goal. It's not just to say, well, I'm not dry bones. I'm a corpse. No. We want the breath of life breathed into us. We want to recognize God is going after our hearts. And once he gets our hearts, then we're postured to go after other people's hearts. When you move all the way towards the right, then you're in a position. You're part of that vast army from Ezekiel 37. You're postured and in a position for God to use you to go after other people's hearts. You won't worry about trying to change their behavior. You won't even worry about trying to change their mind. You'll be able to love them and bless them and serve them so well. You'll get their hearts, which is what he wants in the first place. As we close, I want you to think about these pictures and I want you to personalize it. First, I want you to look in. I don't want you to be too hard on yourself and I don't want you to condemn yourself. I want you to look in and say, which of those three is most reflective of where I am right now? I don't care where you were last year. Right now, which of those three? Are you dried and cracked and worn out and weary? I'm not asking if you're a Christian. I'm saying look in your heart and tell me where you are right now. Are you in the middle? You're good. Everything's fine. You're making it along. Okay. Not a lot of fruit. Not a lot of sin. You're just kind of plugging away. Are you on the right? There's stuff stirring in you. And you know it. Maybe it scares you a little bit. Because you don't know where things are going. But when you look, you're like, yeah, there's, there's activity here. So that's looking in. Now I want you to look out. Look at the fruit in your life. What would you say? Yeah. There's none. I'm not having, I don't see any impact. That doesn't mean that you're being unfaithful. You just may say, I'm, I'm, I'm in a desert. Then let us pray with you about that. 
Don't take that as condemnation. Just be real and say, I'm in a desert. You come work where I work. See how long you make it. Middle one. Again, just kind of, you're okay. It's mediocre. Neither good nor bad. You see some fruit, but you're not necessarily seeing significant change. One on the far right. God's at work and you can see it. And again, all of that is not dependent upon you. So I don't want you to hear me putting that on you. I'm just looking two different. I want you to look at both of these things. One, look in what's going on in here. And then two, look out. Where am I positioned? And if I'm not far right on both, then there's that's opportunity for prayer. God, you said if I believed in you and I do that rivers of living water would flow from me. Well, they aren't. So let's work on that. Is that a me issue? Is that you? Uh, like, help me. I want to be over there and I'm not. God, you said that your kingdom was coming now. And if I look out, it is a wasteland. And so I want, to, I want to see progress in the people I love. I want to see progress in the environment that I'm in. I want to see fruit. So it's two different questions. And again, the goal for, for us is to live as much as we can in the right. You don't, things change. Ephesians 5.18 says, pray continually, excuse me, pray continually to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time deal. It's a prayer every day. For some, it's a prayer three times a day. It's a recognition. If I'm going to live on the far right, I've got to constantly be saying, all right, God, let's, let's go. And that's okay. It's not, it's, in, it's as intended. He's a relational God. He's not looking to make a one-time deposit into you and then let you go run. He's not even looking to put batteries in you and say you can come back every six months when they run down. He's relational. He's looking for daily interaction. I've talked enough. Let's pray. Ministry teams, if you guys would come. We've got time. We have ten minutes um, before we need to get our kids or we normally dismiss. So I don't want you to feel rushed. And just, and I want you to honestly think about both of those questions. Internal and external. Look at your internal first. That's the one that is where it needs to start. Remember, we're going after hearts, not behavior. So first thing is, God, in my own heart, which of those three pictures is most reflective of reality? Am I dry bones? Am I the walking dead? Am I part of a vast army? Which of the three? Some of you just need to stay there. You don't even need to move to the next question. Because that's the primary one today. If that's where you are, all you have to do is ask. We looked at it a few weeks ago. How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He is sitting on go. All He's waiting is for you to ask for the first time or the thousandth time. God, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. I don't know what rushing rivers feels like, looks like. 
But that's the reality that I want to live in. And I confess, it scares me. If you've ever been on a rushing river, guess who's in control? Not you. You're along for the ride. That's scary to us. Could you say this morning, but God, even more, if I'm honest, more than I want to control you, I want to trust you. So help me. For some of you, you do need to ask the second question, the external question. God, I'm living in a desert. I'm doing what I know to do. But I'm living in a desert. I need it to rain. I'm dying here. And people I love are dying here. And the enemy seems to be winning here. You're that middle picture. God, it's fine. Like it's fine. I see hints and I see glimpses. God, what I want to see is breakthrough. Not so people think I'm great, but to make your name known. Time back into the Lord's Prayer. We want to make everybody know your name, God, not ours. So we want to see it, God. We want to see people who are broken in their bodies being healed. We want to see people who are isolated in their relationships being brought into families. People who are burdened with addictive behaviors set free. We want to see those things, God. We want to see fruit. Places where unrighteousness reigns. We want to see justice. So whatever it means for you to use me in that, do it. I'm available. I'm tired of living in a desert. So however you respond to that, internal, external, we'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But particularly what we want to pray this morning is for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time, for the thousandth time. And I don't want you nervous about that. And I don't want you wondering, like, I don't, we don't care about the package here. We don't care about the wrapping paper at all. Then neither does God. That's an external. We're concerned about the inside of the cup, not the outside. So all we're going to ask is for God to fill you, whatever that looks like, and trust him as your father to do the rest. In Jesus' name.